Friends and enemies alike, I welcome you. I'm Will Ross. I'm Devin Scott. Today we're going to chat about our experience making a talking dog movie with two of our friends and fellow filmmakers, Daniel Jeffrey and Mackenzie Warner. Well, really it's about indie post-production. Specifically, we're going to talk about our respective roles as editor, composer, colorist, and sound designer for A New Leash on Life by sharing notes on our processes, our theories of the craft, and some personal anecdotes. Welcome to Film Formally. Okay, spoiler alert. We're going to spoil the movie this episode. We've talked about some different elements of post-production in movies before, like sound design or picture editing. But one thing we haven't really talked about very much is what it means to be a member of a team in post-production. Part of that is probably because, unlike the way dozens of people will coexist on a set during the principal photography stage of production, post-production tends to involve smaller groups, even individuals, in smaller rooms. So we're going to talk about that with two folks who spearheaded a short that Devin and I did some post-production work on ourselves. Those two people are Daniel Jeffrey, the co-writer and director and editor of the short film A New Leash on Life. Hi, Daniel. Why, hello. Thank you for having me and us. Yeah, and that other part of the us is Mackenzie Warner, the other co-writer and the music composer on A New Leash on Life. Mackenzie, it has been way too long. Yes, it has. Remember when we all used to live together for maybe a day or two in overlap? <laughs> <Not quite. laughs> Before we jump into our experiences in each of our positions working in post, let's talk a little bit about A New Leash on Life, which, as we record this, is playing online at VIF, and I've gotten full permission from... Daniel and Mac to just spoil the shit out of this thing. So what is this, guys? What is a new leash on life? <clears throat> well, well, the inception of the idea from my point of view was once upon a time in my grad year, Mac sent me a script out of the blue, as he so often does. And I just read it probably in an edit suite in the middle of stressing out over my serious grad film, Mr. Video. And it was just an elation <laughs> to read. Mac, what was the inception on your end, though? Because I, I had no recollection of anything before then. Uh, we were hanging out, and it was uh, you, me, and uh, Andrew Gillingham. And we were all just, like, joking around. And I, I believe it was you two who actually... It was some joke about a talking dog film where the, it, it, the end result is the dog gets put down. And I thought that was just truly hilarious. My dog had just been put down in, real, in IRL, so maybe that was why. That... I just remember the joke being funny but you guys just moved on from it but i went home and just kind of just like kept thinking about that and being like that's there's something there <laughs> so i wrote a script and sent it to you apparently in an editing room i don't know just the form of doing a talking dog film but kind of getting to do whatever the hell you want with it and also kind of take your audience ransom with the subject matter where you could lead them into one thing and then it could be heart-wrenching but also it had like I think, Mac, around this time, you were watching, what was that Leslie Nielsen, like, comedy cop show? Uh, Police Squad. I f and I feel like a lot of the dialogue, in retrospect, is, like, of that ilk. <laughs> this, this film became, in within our social circle, I think, almost mythical for how much <laughs> it was talked about relative to how much it was being made for several years. <laughs> it's a great way to put it. It's about a magical talking dog named Basketball, who 
after one too many rage-filled outbursts, must convince his owner out of being put down. Yeah, it's essentially we like we get introduced to a, a dog who's immediately showing us like a rage-filled outburst. And then from there, he thinks he's going on a car ride to a park. But in actuality, the family has had a meeting and they've decided behind his back that they can no longer support a dog with rage in the family. So that's that's kind of the setup for the whole situation. And the fact that he's a talking dog only makes that car ride to the vet a lot more difficult for both Frank, Frank Blatt, the, the owner, and uh, basketball, the dog. Basketball, like the fact that he's a talking dog does not, is, is in no way a bargaining chip for him with his owner. Like it doesn't, it doesn't play into the decision-making process at all, it feels like. <laughs> Um, Definitely. It was the biggest production I've ever had to helm handily in terms of crew. It was when you try and <laughs> replicate kind of the aesthetic of a talking dog movie, it kind of turned into a fairly commercial enterprise. Um, so that was a challenge, but I was much more comfortable and familiar with the post end of things. And that was more intimate and with just a small handful of people. So that was just like from the beginning, you were, you knew you were going to edit it, or I mean, I just personally, I guess I literally edit everything I do. I love editing probably more than directing. It it is for me directing in a lot of ways. Like I don't really feel like my voice or interpretation of it isn't one hundred percent there until I do a draft through the edit, essentially. So like I I don't know actually. I that's probably it could even be a fault of mine. I've never handed off my stuff to anybody to edit. Maybe it would be much better. I don't know, but I I feel I feel the same way, but with color, you know, where it's like if I don't color correct something or shoot, I don't feel like I'm done. Yeah, yes. Yeah, so it's like I haven't actually finished my work. Um, it's a maybe it's a complex we have. Yeah, and I don't know. It's one of the most fun processes for me too. So I just it was the fruits of our labor, and I wanted to eat eat the fruit. But but that being said, I also like Mac was huge on the edit too, and cons- I consulted a lot with Mac. He even did a full alternate cut oh. which is pretty wild and some ideas definitely were implemented uh from that were there any any specific ideas that weren't in your cut but were in max that are in the you had cut? a few musical interludes uh and montages using the drone footage more i i wouldn't say it was an alternate cut that kind of in, implies that like it was a completely separate film i think what it was it was more of just kind of like stretching the footage seeing where we could go see where we can take it fresh eyes that kind of thing i uh with the these interludes that daniel's referring to i was kind of going for um just trying to explore like the the space of time in which they get to an actual the destination make it feel like it is actually a longer distance than than 12 minutes 13 minutes however long the film ends up being everything editing wise came from daniel i think what i was doing was just showing them alternate um, perspectives. Um, when he would try and cut for drama, maybe I would try and cut for comedy. So he would have that alternative take to just think about and chew on and maybe just use elements of that, but then play with this hybridization that this film ends up becoming where, you know, the comedy is deeply, deeply subconscious until the end when it becomes very in your face. <laughs> if, if that, uh, if I can say that. There was a lot of push and pull between uh, I, I do think overall it's probably a more dramatic film with like comedic <laughs> undertones in the end. And I think at one point in time it could have been the other way around where I think when I first read the script and really loved it, I definitely imagined it as like a <laughs> wild cartoony comedy that happened to have like maybe a uh, tragic through line. And I think <laughs> 
we I kind of flipped it after seven years of perhaps thinking or maybe overthinking it. But uh, it, I was by the time we got to shooting it, I had thought about the other version so much. This was the one that currently was more interesting to me was to try and do trying to do it straight and to be serious about <laughs> the dog and the stakes of that and uh, pet owner. Like, was that ever tempting? Like to like just like flip the tone from what you shot to like go like ah fuck it, let's go Looney Tunes on this thing's ass. That's the perfect way to put it. That is exactly what yeah. I was doing. My alternate cut is very Looney Tunes. There is like I want to see this cut. Two, two or three, yeah, you, you know, like digital zoom, iris wipes, uh, slide whistle sort of things. Yeah. That that are like still, <laughs> but like they got, they kept getting, and I liked them and they would get called out. And um, I don't know. I eventually, they got, uh, they got b- more buried. They're still subtly there in, there's nods to them, I think, but it's more buried until. I'd say the vet scene when things become at their zaniest. There was one point where I asked Daniel when I was doing sound design, if I could put a fart in the movie, I was going to ask you, and I never found this fart. Is it still in? I mean, cause it went through another mix. It's in That's there. Beautiful. Yeah. That is beautiful. I, what I did is like to make sure that you couldn't like ask your mixer to like, <laughs> cause I didn't do the mix. I just did the sound edit. I meant to make sure you could just ask your mixer to find it. I combined it with one of the other sounds that was going on at the same time, just to yeah, make sure. Can I? Can I just ask uh, who who is farting? No, who, I don't want to know. I don't okay, want to know. Okay, it's. No, I think this needs to be a mystery that only Will knows. Yeah, I don't want anyone else to ever know where I put the fart. Uh, but yeah, that, I, I think that's but, that's beautiful. I love that. But that was that was da- literally Daniel's direction. <laughs> it was like you could put a fart in the movie. But I can't know it's there, <laughs> and I guess that's. It sounds like that would end up kind of be your approach to the Looney Tunes element in general. It was like it had to be very subtextual. Mm-hmm. I think it did. Uh, yeah, all the all the wild stuff got pushed down a little bit, but it's like it's there. When you're editing and you've you've come off of directing and you're editing, is there any big thought of as you're working like, okay, I have this kind of idea and I want the sound designer to take this general sentiment or this general philosophy and run with it or are you just thinking of the edit getting it to a good place in the edit and then just thinking okay what mac does with the score or what will does with the sound or what devin does with the color i don't know like good luck to them i think a combination of i think i end up having intuitively very specific little ideas but i don't want to be too attached to those things either because those aren't entirely my departments of expertise either and when I when you collaborate and um, with people whose work you like, uh, it would be a crime <laughs> not to, especially on something like this where there's so much flexibility to, to hopefully do something wild and fun. To let the person explore and do their own wild and fun thing and come with fresh ideas, because certainly my ideas have been <laughs> stewed on for like months and months and months in post. By that point, so like I know with the sound design, I had like handful of things in there, and I had wrote out some ideas of how I kind of imagined it, but like definitely wanted (laughs) more and was sort of just, I think gave you free reign and similar to the music. um, I was editing intentionally with temp music that I knew was not anything like what I would want to use actually, just so I wouldn't get attached to it. And also couldn't because (laughs) the rights as like editing to the days of heaven soundtrack, um, (laughs) which which, like a little different than the, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which like i remember days of heaven having like baby sounds in it <laughs> <laughs> yeah which like worked on an ironic 
level, I think, because it was so like it's so magnificent and beautiful, and um, there's uh, I don't know, it, it worked for me, but it was too too ironic, and there was already a few levels of like veiling potentially the emotion from the audience through being like straight face and things, and then like to make the music also ironic, I started to feel like we were just like walling people off from the the core of the movie. That was like the one thing that I was hoping that we could do in earnest a little bit um, was the music. Uh, and we kind of over time figured out that to emotionally kind of root it in like the dog's point of view. So, and that kind of like worked really well to arc the whole film. So like where in my temp music, things were kind of like mysterious, classical, magical out of the gate. That wasn't necessarily the way to set people up for the film. It was more fun to kind of do this exuberant um, opening and obliviousness of like this dog who doesn't know his family is currently planning to murder him and then do the rug pull kind of later and then follow the dog along with the realization of what's going on. So it sounds like there was some discussion between the two of you of the point of view of the music. And I think probably the toughest kind of score to write is a comedy score. It's easier to make like a bad or annoying comedy score than any other kind of film music. And it's harder to make a really genuinely great comedy score <laughs> than pretty much any other kind of film music. So yes, I agree. <laughs> I would be hard pressed to really um, name like some top comedy scores. I'd, I'd find that really hard to do, but I know that they're out there and they exist. Okay, well, yeah. Hans Zimmer's new space jam two score. <laughs> There we go. I've been complaining about this in every recording that like there's it's like I can't think of a worse choice to score a Space Jam 2 <laughs> than Hans Zimmer. <laughs> I do find with a lot of uh, comedy, um, there's definitely uh, a reliance on um, the use of like actual um, like songs. I do find that's. Um, yeah, that's, well, that's a big thing. The, the main musical scoring in comedy that is loathsome and the worst and that you'll sometimes hear is like or it's usually like in movies where it's not entirely clear something was intended to be funny i'd like rather than live with that they some they like get some pizzicato cellos yeah yeah <laughs> I, I think yeah exactly there's like a scene i remember watching i think with you well there's like a scene in i believe it's amazing spider-man 2 where electro is like going through the fridge to find a birthday cake and it's just like it's, it's not like playing at all and there's like like boom, 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 like that kind of stuff and i was like i knew that was i, I like, remember you saying that as an actual note for me not to do this bump 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 thing and i'm like what what, is it, what are you talking about and then i well, think you referred to me to that scene why would you visit me we're best friends what are you doing Cake. I think like to indicate, yeah, it just does not work to indicate comedy now. If if you don't, it's just functionless. It doesn't do anything. Well, I'm looking at my favorite comedies just on Letterboxd, and almost every score for these comedies emphasizes the pathos. Like the first one that came up was Grand Budapest Hotel. Mm-hmm. I say it's a comedy, but the score is com- almost completely emotional, melancholic, dramatic. Mm-hmm. Right? It does not serve to to emphasize the comedic bits it serves to emphasize the tragedy behind those which kind of sums up that home film yeah um something like uh young girls in russia fort which is like a musical but the score in that is sweeping romantic even though it's a comedy there's very little in the way of comedic 
elements in that actual score. Um, and the list goes on and on and on. Point yeah. being, maybe the best way to score a comedy is maybe to score a drama. My favorite comedy score of all time is like The Burbs by Jerry Goldsmith, which is fucking amazing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and if you haven't heard The Burbs by Jerry Goldsmith, like you, like it's a, I mean, he, he has a lot of great comedy scores in general, but The Burbs is amazing because it's not just Jerry Goldsmith scoring The Burbs. It's Jerry Goldsmith like parodying his entire own career. And like Airplane has a really great like explicitly like that's that's just straight up parodying what like yeah. mm-hmm. uh, but it's I mean it opens with the Jaws theme yeah <laughs> but it's also sincere it's like in world it's not it's not being ironic yeah mm-hmm. yeah like I think you know the scene where um, Leslie Nielsen does the Newt Rockney speech uh, and he you know the go uh, win one more for the zipper uh, that scene genuinely moves me even though it's nonsense really because the score is so sweeping it's lovely uh, but I, it probably shows how shallow of a human being I am oh. but uh, That's fantastic. No, that, that makes absolute sense yeah uh, Getting back on track, uh, Mac, you didn't choose. <laughs> what I'm curious about here is how you two worked out to the point. Where'd the babies come from? Oh, <laughs> Where'd the babies come from? Where did, how did you two work out to that point of view idea of like, okay, here's the tone, here's the idea? It was like what Daniel said a bit earlier um, about how, uh, even for like the tone of the film itself, uh, being kind of from the perspective of the dog, because for a while we were going back and forth between, um, is this Frank's dilemma? Which it's, it is a big dilemma mm. that's apparent on screen. Or is this uh, basketball's film? And we we wrote drafts and drafts from both sides, both perspectives, because there is a really intimate relationship between the two of them, and it does feel like co-leads in a way because they're both like essentially share the same amount of screen time. But uh, like Daniel said, uh, we did realize this is a film kind of for dogs in a way. <laughs> <laughs> this is from the perspective of the animal in the car, and. Uh, um, from that perspective, I uh, kind of use the music to, in a way, like how dogs can sense the emotion of their uh, owner, and their emotions are kind of guided by their owner. Um, I kind of had to, from scene to scene, watch basketball, watch Frank, and kind of interpret that as the emotional underscore of the film. And I'll just say, like, I am, a, maybe Devin relates, a musical layman. I don't play an instrument. I can hardly speak music so <laughs> that's a that's yeah have you not heard my remixes <laughs> that's true i'm sorry i'm sorry forgive me do you are you going to link that in the the show notes or yes <laughs> that's exciting so that would be a frustrating <laughs> it's frustrating obviously for a musician to be directed by someone who <laughs> doesn't speak music very well um so i i did i had few i had a uh some broad guiding thoughts but i already having been a fan of the music Mac makes for scores, but also in his own, his own music. I was just, I knew that I was really interested to see what he would do. And obviously it's like a rare opportunity where your writer is also your composer potentially. So like he, obviously we were on the same page about a lot of stuff. So um, it just made sense for him to give it a go. I think when we first started, like even you were like, doesn't mean I'm necessarily doing the score. I'll like do a stab at it and we might like shop it out or, I don't know if I can do it. The pressure wasn't there to 100% necessarily figure it out, but um, it just, I just was really happy with basically everything you put forward. And then there was some shaping to it and different iterations, but it was essentially just seemed to be pretty intuitive. Like I know you, the original tracks you gave me weren't synced to the film. They were just emo- like <laughs> kind of ideas you had for like 
kind of moods or emotions and you just played long chunks. <laughs> I just sent these three tracks that were kind of more just these like um, what I really wanted to like, it was kind of a test for me because I know that Daniel really likes Daniel Johnston. So that felt to me like I can get away with some lo-fi stuff, you know, I was seeing what I could get away with. So I sent him some tracks to see if he would be like, this doesn't, this sounds so par or this is fine. And he seemed to really dig it. So to me, that kind of opened my mind to be like, okay, now I can, I can feel like I can just roam free with the aesthetics that I've been, you know, applying to my music in the past. But uh, it didn't feel like I had to make it like a symphony or I had to kind of like, you know, take these like strong stabs at genre. I could be a little bit more um, free and kind of um, express the emotional undercurrent of the film in a way that I thought was uh, a little more how a dog would I know I keep saying this, but like how a dog's logic would apply to any type of problem that arose or any type of question I had about the music. Like, for instance, to answer uh, uh, Devin's question, um, the babies. <laughs> um, I, uh, I was, well, I guess I can say I, I was um, influenced by a number of different things like going in. Like I just came, I was like definitely toying with some uh, um different sounds that I wanted to play with. I wanted to make it cute. So I, I definitely wanted to add this layer of like, this dog's probably essentially still young. He's probably um, hasn't seen much of the world beyond these key points. Um, and his main interaction for the last six months was with a baby. So I, I think that would play a lot into the um, sound atmosphere of this, of this dog's world. So uh, I turned to like different albums that I was looking at. I uh, listened to like Youth Lagoon, Wondrous Bug House. Um, that has a really cute quality to it that I really enjoy. All to say, to answer the question of why there was babies in there, I was thinking like the Rugrats theme song too. I wanted to kind of pull this idea out of both the story of that that was in earlier renditions of the script and uh, just kind of compress that all into, um, yeah, sounds that uh, basketball would have um, been exposed to living in this house and kind of only seeing these these few rooms. I enjoyed, yeah, that like the instrumentation of most things was there was just one or two elements per track. I felt that like just gave it character and made it demented in a specific way that was like just nice to plant in there so that I, like I, laughing babies you found to yeah. be like. It almost like had it, this torturous it need, effect. It needed that. I, I didn't feel like the opening worked <laughs> until there was some illusion to that this film is demented or you're going to be like it needed something like that. Otherwise, it was too. It, it became too conventional. Yeah. And then like percussion, I would use like um, I went for the maraca because of you know like a baby's rattle, like things like that. Um, very uh, like minimal instrumentation. That being said, it does kind of get big. I wanted to go, like in that opening scene, I did want to kind of show if this is like the ends of the earth to the dog, this front yard, I wanted to kind of show it as this like big celebratory thing before he gets locked in a car for the rest of the film. Daniel's a good example of a director where, yeah, you get quite a lot of leeway. But I think it's also true that to some extent that we always have this internal compromise uh, whenever we do any strongly collaborative effort, especially one that requires you to silo off your talent quite a bit, right? Like I think none of us know color and color science like a third as well as Devin does. Uh, none of us know music nearly as well as Mac does. It's funny uh, where 
we're talking about how much freedom there potentially was in everyone's roles, but I feel bad. Probably the least freedom. I feel like David, in some ways, you got the least. <laughs> I think initially there is a lot of freedom, and then color ends up just getting the most nitpicked by like several people. For, That's like, the thing. Color, color is the one that gets the most notes from the people who know the least. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <I> exactly. <think>. <laughs> <laughs> Although in this case, we had a cinematographer, Will Minsky. Uh, who uh, knows a heck of a lot about color and um, yeah, was very involved in that process, uh, which ended up being far more involved than I expected going in. Actually, it's one of the most specific deliberative processes I've ever had coloring a film that I didn't shoot, which was uh, actually a refreshing change of pace from a lot of other things. Just regarding that. Yeah. How did you, uh, how did you find exploring someone else? Well, you do that a lot. You, you color so many films, so you're always exploring other people's work and what's the line for you as a colorist uh, between your own self-expression and like do you carry over ideas from film to film or do you always find that uh, it's a new a new thing going in i feel like i have the same response to this that i do when people ask me a similar question about cinematography and that's that it really depends film to film um the short film i color corrected but before doing this, I remember, was a half-day affair. The film was just as long, but I did a single pass, and I sent it to the cinematographer. I made all my own decisions, and the cinematographer and director were both like, great, this looks wonderful. Uh, let's patch it up a little and uh, call it a day. And that was great. I think that film ended up looking fine. Um, in this case, in contrast, um, we were very deliberative about it because I knew that you know this is a film that go, could go in a few directions. So I generated some swatches, which means that I tried out a few different looks on the footage um, and uh, sent Daniel and uh, Will, uh, the um, Will Minsky, not Will Ross, my co-host, um, uh, a series of still images that represented, you know, the different possible looks we could go with. I was given a direction, and off I went. Um, this is a film with, uh, I think, actually some unusual challenges in terms of the color. Um, the biggest one of which was that it was shot on, I think, five cameras, wasn't it, um, from different makers? Four, I believe. Four. Oh yeah, four. four. But yeah. So you got too many. Uh, you got the A camera, which is the Blackmagic production 4K. You got the B camera, which was the Blackmagic Ursa. It was one of the Ursas. There's a few. The Sony A7S, as well as a DJI drone, which is a flying camera with little helicopter blades. It's pretty cool. It was the A7 III. Was it the A7 III? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Oh, boy. Nice. So, you know, to, to actually achieve the look, I not only had to create a look for the film, I had to, through a series of color space transforms, which means that you're telling your color correcting software, hey, this camera, do your best to interpret the color science behind it and make it look like this totally different camera. Um, combination of that and just brute force color grading to make all four of those cameras, which look wildly different, look similar. And that's you know, not uncommon, actually. Lots and lots of films do that. So you did that yeah. on your first pass and you presented the color. And I assume Daniel and Wilminski were both there looking at the color you presented. And it was all done remotely, for what it's worth. Okay. This was mostly done in the COVID era. And, and what, what, what was, Daniel, what was the first set of notes? I don't know the answer to this. Um, oh, my gosh. Oof, ooh, baby. No, I, I think there were, I think actually initially, <laughs> that's probably what was frustrating about it. I think it, start, it started more positively and pretty loose. And then as, as we like got drafts in and all started looking at it more and more, 
uh, with scrutiny. We're like, oh, and it, a lot of it was the uh, different camera, but a lot of it was actually we had a ND filter issue that was causing all our greens to be completely, literally orange. In the <laughs> Can open. I explain this? I want to explain oh, no. this so bad. Okay. I really love explaining this. It's a good learning opportunity. Yeah. And again, it happens to all of us. Like, I, I can't think of a cinematographer for whom this has not happened to. And if they were, they were born with a goddamn silver spoon in their mouth. Anyways, <laughs> you have three aspects on cameras you can control exposures with. Aperture, shutter speed, and ISO. But sometimes... You say you want shallow depth of field and you're stuck at a high aperture and it's bright out. You need to put what are essentially sunglasses on your camera, aka neutral density or ND filters. Now, these neutral density filters, the word neutral means that they will not shift the color that's coming into your camera. But the problem is there's the visible light spectrum, then there's the invisible infrared light spectrum. Certain ND filters are designed to cut out the infrared light and some do not. The problem is digital cameras are very sensitive to the infrared spectrum. So if you cut out all the visible light, you're going to get all this infrared pollution, which means that your shadows turn red and your trees, which are green, turn yellow and it looks like autumn when it's actually summer. So um, what happened was one of the ND filters, for whatever reason, it, it did not also filter out the infrared. So a lot of the shots had red trees and such and uh, red shadows. So that was another challenge. And kind of the way around that is you kind of got two options. You can either swim upstream against that or you can run with that look and we decided mostly to run with that look didn't we yeah so i and i think the balance was the problem was the grass was dead yellow and (laughs) it was an overcast day and we were i was kind of hoping it needed this sort of we realized more exuberant opening with the dog running around rather than just like bleak and, and uh depressing out of the gate and it was really hard to make it feel that way when it was cooked into the image essentially that the gra- that everything was dead and <laughs> decaying but we eventually yeah. <laughs> we eventually turned that dead decay into yeah more uh fa- more warm fall and then did get some of that green back in and it, yeah. it felt more it didn't we had to rotoscope the grass <laughs> it was a it was a balance yeah. yeah 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 but it was really it was a great challenge i don't know like color would not be fun if you didn't have those challenges and i really respect you and uh and mr minsky when you see this like you see this and you say to Devin, okay we need a bit more of this what are your notes are you are you the one who are you just coming in and saying like this there's this aspect and this is a problem i don't know what the solution is or are you coming to it and are you the one sort of saying Maybe we can just bring in more of like a, a, a warm fall color. Are those the kind of ideas you're bringing to the table or are you just kind of pointing out like, mm, this isn't quite gelling? Yeah, uh, for me, it comes from, I think I intuitively respond to the film as I, as I see it and things like that. And it's probably somewhat frustrating because, yes, of course, I'm not a colorist. And um, so I'm, I'm not fully aware of what can be done. Uh, it's such a huge part of the film, obviously, and, and it affects very much how you're communicating to the audience, sort of how to sort of feel about what you're seeing. Um, and at the beginning of the movie, especially, that was really important. And so it was a lot of reverse engineering from feelings where you're like, oh, this feels <laughs> like it's mm-hmm. leading us down potentially a wrong path, or that feels great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like not knowing how to drive a boat. And then just like hoping to Christ your crew knows what they're doing. Uh, (laughs) You're like, we got to go that direction. And hopefully they know what ropes to pull to do that. But (laughs) a good way to frame this on your end, Daniel, a question to frame it is um, what were your goals when you designed the look of the film with Will? Mm. And how did color play into your plans? 
So Will um, very much took to the idea, kind of our initial pitch with him when he came on board. He liked the script a lot, uh, but I think he was he was on the fence. Probably wasn't particularly interested to do like a talking dog <laughs> comedy if it was sort of just like shot in a. I think he was imagining like a sort of zany kind of cartoony way. But then I, the idea at this point that was appealing to me that I kind of pitched and he took to another level was that I wanted it to potentially feel sort of like an indie drama. I think where his hand really came into play was like the vet sequence, which I kind of always in my head thought it would probably play best. I was sort of imagining like sort of like docudrama, maybe like Office UK, kind of like kind of banal horror. <laughs> and when I got to the clinic, I was like, Jesus Christ, it's like CSI, like coroner's office in here. And that was not <laughs> something we had necessarily talked about. But at the same time, I love, I really liked it, but I could not compute in the moment how that would translate to the comedy that I was previously imagining. Basically, I pitched to him a premise that he made me stick to it more than I think I was than I was brave enough to actually do. So I was and I ended up being quite grateful for that. And I think I mean, it could have gone another direction for sure. Um, but in post, I don't know, that's one of my favorite sequences. It's leading you to believe it's a different type of film than it is. And I think the the visuals that you two designed were are maybe the key element for that for me, where it's like, you see the opening and you're like, oh, I know what type of film this is. And then you're wrong. Mm -hmm. You're wrong. That was something we wanted to try and do. And I still don't, it's funny because yes, this film was finished obviously mid pandemic. So I've literally never seen this movie more than with one other person, like usually my partner next to me. And it's like no indication. of. So I like, I, I usually you can kind of do some test screenings, even with a group of people or I've never seen it in a theater. So I have no, I still don't have a full accurate sense of really emotionally how, when the rug is pulled, what that emotional journey kind of is, unfortunately. But like my fear with the film was that, did we go too far in some places? Like I can answer that. No, we didn't. The doctor's office scene is a good example of what made sound designing this in a vacuum so scary, especially because like... Nice segue. I, I only had Paige ever to react to what I, <laughs> what I was doing and whether or not it was funny. And and that's a good sounding board to have. But it, I like when I first watched the cut of the film before sound designing it. Uh, and this was when at this point to me, it was still like that very funny talking dog movie. And like by the time it got to the scene where like she's about to put the needle in him, I was like, oh, OK, so this is a this is a this is not this is not just a zany comedy. I, I actually have to think about the tone in this thing. <laughs> And uh, well, the way you described that was as, as like as if you were like sound designing it, but weren't watching anything past the point you're sound designing. Like 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 laying the track right in front of you, and just like <laughs> you only live once. <laughs> Anyways, go ahead. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, I like I have some questions uh, regarding sound design. Uh, Will actually, um, you know, some accusations, no doubt. No, no, no. I uh, I really um, I really appreciated and admired. Uh, what you did with this film i thought it was very uh very subtle and very um it doesn't show itself it doesn't show its hand it doesn't make itself obvious and i thought that was like that's the genius stroke of it but um, there's i 100 percent agree but i also appreciated there's select moments where like the looney tune stuff it, it it does it does incorporate the like in the clinic or the vet scene my favorite like addition later in the game ended up being how fucking juicy 
the needles became. <laughs> yeah. you could he, you could hear the. Well, juice that's my question. Like, yeah, I want to know, like, what was some of the what were some of these like hidden gems that you were uh, you were conjuring up? Like, I'm so interested to know what you're doing. My thinking with the needles was it like she just stabs him with needles too many times for it not to have a funny sound. That was the entirety of, of my rationale. And I just knew that the sound had to be big and just sound disgusting. Like the audience just had to feel like, how is how is this dog? Serv-? Like they had to feel like the the liquid, the impact of the liquid every time. I, I realized like what I really liked about it was like the first needle goes in, you, the audience feels it and people who hate needles hate it. But then it's a really very, dividing line in the film. Yeah, I, very, I really recognize that very quickly like as as soon as that's introduced i feel like very quickly it works to just like desensitize and like audiences to the needle hopefully i I do tend to like sound design and like like i i watch the whole movie and like i kind of develop a plan but i do sound design in more or less sequential order so by that time i was willing to go so far so there's there's a moment of dialogue where she's not on screen and like i added more needle stuff that wasn't <laughs> yeah. there originally because right, right. i was like what would she be doing that she'd probably still be trying to kill the dog <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. It was like a combination of logic and just trying to push the tone of the scene as far as possible. Well, one thing I will say from the writing perspective about that scene, um, we knew from like the whole strategy, like of the whole film as as one piece, it was um, going to be something that starts off feeling very real and very um, down to earth, you know, with a larger than life score, but it was going to still feel like planted in reality. And then in, throughout the film, it has all these little clues and cues of uh, moments of absurdity and they keep kind of piling on each other and uh um, nancy uh nancy's character is kind of supposed to be like the first real like reveal that this this we're not living in a real world where absurd things happen we're living in like a cartoon world where we're watching it from a very dramatic perspective um Mm -hmm. and then once she starts with the needles that's when you're like okay this is looney tunes we live in a looney tunes world um that was kind of the idea so Really, it was one of those. We couldn't do just one needle. We couldn't do just three needles. It had to be <laughs> dozens, however many needles. Yeah. <laughs> the question I want to make sure we got to before we wound down. I want to talk about how your responsibility to others weighs on you or doesn't when you're doing this work, right? So, like, I feel responsible to the sound mixer and I have emotions around that or I feel I have responsibilities to Daniel. And I don't just mean as you're working, but like when you're finished and like when you see the film later and you have regrets or don't, like, do you ever feel like a sense of like, oh, I'm responsible to, I mean, the audience or to the next person or to your director or I just wanted to get you guys' take on that, on the responsibilities uh, to others in working on a post-production role. That's really, really interesting. Uh, I like that question. And I feel like it's a critical question for me at this juncture because I think the favorite, my favorite things that I've done have been things that are pretty stripped down, lo-fi, very few people involved, sometimes literally 100% myself if it's a documentary handicam thing. Um, and in those scenarios, obviously, I don't feel beholden <laughs> to literally anybody except myself. I'm just 100% purely making something that, I, uh, that resonates with me. Um, but definitely in any, the few fiction narrative films I've done with larger crews and multiple people, I think I empathetically very much do take on this burden of (laughs) like, this has to be, 
this has to be meaningful to other people and has to translate to a broader audience, which um, could be potentially a good thing in terms of me making choices that are with the audience more in mind. Um, but it can also potentially make choices that are less interesting and potentially drown out some things that maybe would be more fun to just embrace. Um, but this film, it became, I mean, this film, I, this is a film I've like <laughs> thought of like four or five different ways probably to make it. And like, there's definitely a polar opposite version of this film, which is like, <laughs> just see the pants, like shoot it with shit camera on a green screen with just like somebody's dog, a hundred percent edit jokes, improv. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There was multiple iterations. One iteration was just like, um, card, like the South park style, like, um, cartoon cutouts and we kind of right, even attempted that. a little uh um mock versions of that we were there wasn't any good obviously but but yeah i would say with this one i definitely did feel and <laughs> uh like i love the source material and i loved i love making and i'm ha- really happy with the production in the film but i definitely distinctly did something that i don't usually do which is take into account more i guess imagining that there's some responsibility of the film to like fulfill the expectation it sets out on a little bit um who is that responsibility to i don't know are you i need a therapist i need help (laughs) i I would just answer that as um your responsibility is always like first and foremost to your audience um Hmm. as a writer we uh, have an audience i find that um well (laughs) (laughs) yeah um (laughs) Even even the audience that you make up in your mind, and I would say that um, you're the first audience member when you're writing an idea, and you have to really use your own emotional reaction to the ideas that are coming out. And that's why writing is very exploratory. You should really allow the ideas to generate, um, not as something that you want to attempt to do, but something that um, excites you and something that you find almost um, a little overwhelming or a little surprising. And I think you should follow that um, emotional trail. So... This kind of film definitely does that in various ways, um, but you being the first audience member, and then as you start to build this project, and as you start to bring people on board, um, you definitely want to look into how they view the film and start to find some commonalities or start to find some differences, and those are things that are exciting too. I think um, the great example is um, the fart sound that we'll uh, put in. That's That's a fantastic <laughs> example of um of just uh ingenuity i think that's that's truly genius um (laughs) but that being said everything kind of definitely always funnels back down to uh the relationship between the film and the audience and how you treat your audience how uh is this going to be how your audience responds to your film and i think this film um wants to have a fun time with this audience. For me, when I'm, I think I have two answers as to my responsibility. One is as a collaborator, right? As a colorist on this film, I essentially see my responsibility as a colorist to, um, to basically give the people who design the visuals the best version of those visuals. And sometimes the, the definition of best version includes ideas they didn't have. <laughs> that I can hopefully, uh, you know, implement and, you know, maybe pitch, right? And if they don't like those ideas, great. We'll run with the ideas they had. But it's completely, in my view, at, it's at their mercy, basically. Um, and then, you know, it's 
also my responsibility to keep the technical side up you know don't degrade the film needlessly unless they ask it you know to we added film grain which is a degradation but that was a uh specific artistic degradation um but i think my more interesting answer is as a director actually because um when i feel the greatest weight of responsibility is when i'm gonna piss someone off with my movie and you know you know when we did paradiso which was a biblical armageddon comedy i I, my responsibility at that point i thought was that i'm gonna really piss off the catholics and i don't want to do it in a way that is silly or pointless right if i'm gonna piss someone off it might as well be for a good reason when i feel responsibility it tends to be a very acute thing to whoever we're gonna try to avoid to victimize or piss off with our movies um but i don't know maybe that's because like at least the ideas that tend to the ideas that originate with me tend to be the ideas that piss everyone off so i don't know (laughs) on my my responsibility like for example mac you mentioned the responsibility of the audience and i think that's that's a that's an entirely every time someone says that like i totally get it and i don't think they're wrong for saying it but like i like other than just thinking like oh don't betray them like don't hurt them don't like uh, deliberately waste their time or anything like that. Like, I never feel when I make a movie, like, hardly any, like, responsibility to the audience. Often, like, I want I want to get a reaction from the audience, but, like, that tends to be, like, not out of self-responsibility so much as just, like, just my personal goals. <laughs> you know what I mean? My sense of responsibility when I'm working in post, whether I'm editing or sound designing or doing music, is always, like, to, like, the people who I personally know who will watch it and even more so like to the people I'm making it with like every time I do a sound edit for a film that someone else is going to mix I like I feel terrified (laughs) like I I'm always scared that like I'll I'll, I've screwed something up or I've made it tough to mix or or what have you you know they might have been very excited to work on the movie and then suddenly they get like a sound edit that's like riddled with issues either artistically or just technically that makes it hard I feel like responsibility uh, to to the director, like in this case to Daniel, like not to not to like screw up, like <laughs> like right at like the uh, whatever ten yard line. I don't know what's close in football, but like right at the end, <laughs> like to screw up uh, to screw up the whole thing. And similarly, like responsibility to Mac because like he made this score that I really admire, and thinking like, okay, I have to like respect the sonic territory that he's carved out for himself while still introducing like my own useful and and hopefully affecting ideas so that and like and i feel that responsibility like every time i watch any film i've been involved on like i i that the weight of that responsibility falls on me and staying aware of the fact that hey every time you watch this there's going to be a part of you that like is thinking like oh i hope i did justice by the people who i was responsible to whether it's like the family who like were excited to see like whatever i happen to have worked on next or the person who brought me on and is directing me like though like that's where my responsibility always uh, that's where i feel the weight of it most heavily when i'm in post yeah, I really appreciate that, and I and I, I would say yeah, I agree with the. You should definitely recognize um, the responsibility of working with your collaborators and appreciate that. I was I was gonna say I suspect part of the reason none of you guys put as much emphasis on it is because like you're probably not as neurotic about it as I am. Like, um, I would even you made say a, you made a no, movie with a bunch of people who you enjoy and are friends with. You know, like what is no, there? To, I don't. What exactly think, is there to be scared of? I don't think. I think there is a like for me there might be a, a level of. Um, 
a privilege just because since I did, I, I wrote it and I've been kind of um, tied to it for so long that when I get to the point where I'm uh, making the score, um, I don't really feel too responsible to Daniel only because everything mm. he's thought I've thought at this point, it's all just like in the mix. I don't think I could have produced anything that would have been surprising to Daniel, honestly, yeah. um, at that point. Um, so I guess that, that is a bit of a privilege for me that I, that I guess you didn't share. Um, but, um, yeah, that is very eye opening to hear that, um, you did feel a level of responsibility and I just, I always would want to hope that that doesn't ever weigh you down. It only, you should, you should only explore more. You should only be able to feel like you're exploring more fully. Yeah. So Daniel and Mac, how can people see this movie? It's easily accessible, right? Well, if uh, it's October 5th right now, uh, you have two days to watch this. You can watch it on, if you're a BC resident anyway, you can watch it at, on VIF. Uh, you can go connect there and get a ticket. We're in short program number three. We close out the program. Check us out. Or you can DM me at uh, any, you know, on my social media handles, all my my stuff and I'll, you know, I'll just send you a link and you can just watch it too. But I would also recommend, I don't know, Mac, if you're, if this music is going to be anywhere, but I would recommend people check out Max. He's got a SoundCloud. Why he's, he's got a, what's the other one? Bandcamp. Bandcamp. He, he does not, he does not want to plug this himself. He's got a few, few great albums on that. I don't even think we really talked about this, but Mac essentially creates all his music single-handedly usually in his bedroom no thank you i appreciate that thank you so much for having us it's just so much fun to hang with you guys likewise and it's fun to hang out with you too our dear listeners Paige smith is our associate producer if you enjoy this podcast hey come on rate us review us on itunes that helps us out we want to give a shout out to our first three patrons ryan swen joseph elliott and kevin eastwood whose contributions help us cover the cost of this podcast. We'd like to invite you to consider joining our Patreon as well to keep the show going and gain access to Zoom Hangouts, our Slack discussion channel, the ability to ask questions, and more. And you can find that at patreon.com slash filmformally. You can find us on social media, on Twitter or Facebook at filmformally. And we would like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Till next time! Unlike the way dozens of people will coexist on a set during the principal photography stage of production, post-production tends to involve smaller groups. I have so much saliva in my mouth right now. It's ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Typical podcasting problems. I hydrated really well before this and I've seen that was a mistake.